You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now a word from our sponsor, Netscope. Netscope is a worldwide leader in SASE and Zero Trust. Its unified platform, Netscope One, provides optimized access and zero trust security for people, devices, and data anywhere they go, helping customers reduce risk, accelerate performance, and get unrivaled visibility into any cloud, web, and private application activity. To learn more about how Netscope helps customers be ready for anything on their sassy journey, visit netskope.com. Possible consequences of the Taliban seizure of Afghanistan's apps data. Another DeFi platform sustains a cryptocurrency theft. How would one handle a hardware backdoor? Lockbit begins dumping data stolen from Bangkok Airways. Registration for CIS's President's Cup is now open. Joe Kerrigan describes the superiority of AI-generated phishing emails. Rick Howard speaks with Art Pagassian from Britiv on software-defined perimeters. And China moves to keep miners from wasting too much time in online gaming. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Tuesday, August 31st, 2021. The Taliban's seizure of Hyde, that's handheld interagency identity detection equipment, biometric registration and identification devices, Aroused concern when it was first reported, but the risks of that loss, while real, seem likely to be limited. MIT Technology Review argues that a more serious matter is the insurgent government's acquisition of APPS, the Afghan Personnel and Pay System, used by the deposed government's ministries of defense and the interior. A great deal of data was collected in APPS, Technology Review's sources tell it that each profile in apps contains at least 40 data fields. Quote, These include obvious personal information such as name, date, date of birth, as well as a unique ID number that connects each profile to a biometric profile kept by the Afghan Ministry of Interior. But it also contains details on the individual's military specialty and career trajectory, as well as sensitive relational data, such as the names of their father, uncles, and grandfathers, as well as the names of the two tribal elders per recruit who served as guarantors for their enlistment. This amounts to a catalog of community connections, with anyone whose name appears in a profile flagged as connected in some non-trivial way to the subject of the profile. And, unfortunately, there are signs that the lists are being used in headhunting searches for personnel who served in or were otherwise connected to the former government's military services. App's data was unprotected by retention or deletion policies and was presumably seized intact. Another DeFi cryptocurrency platform, that's DeFi as in decentralized finance, Cream Finance, has suffered the theft of $29 million dollars. 
cream suspended supply and borrow in the affected AMP market shortly after blockchain security firm PeckShield detected activity that looked like a reentrancy criminal attack. In general, reentrancy can occur when a procedure can be initiated, interrupted, initiated again in a second instance, and when both instances can then be run to completion without error. PeckShield tweeted how the robbery worked. Quote, the hack is made possible due to a re-entrancy bug introduced by AMP, which is an ERC-777-like token, and exploited to re-borrow assets during its transfer before updating the first borrow. Specifically, in this case, the hacker makes a flash loan of 500 Ethereum and deposits the funds as collateral. Then the hacker borrows 19 million in AMP tokens and makes use of the re-entrancy bug to borrow 355 Ethereum inside the AMP token transfer. Then the hacker self-liquidates the borrow. End quote. And then, of course, Bob's your uncle, or rather, the thieves' uncle. Cream tweeted a summary account of the incident yesterday. Quote, Cream V1 market on Ethereum has suffered an exploit, resulting in a loss of 418,311,571 in AMP, and 1,308.09 in Ethereum by way of reentrancy on the AMP token contract. We have stopped the exploit by pausing supply and borrow on AMP. No other markets were affected. The record thinks the theft displays some of the unfortunate tendencies in the still young cryptocurrency world. They argue, quote, this trend of hackers targeting DeFi platforms can be explained by the fact that the cryptocurrency ecosystem is highly unregulated, security is almost an afterthought, and many platforms fail at implementing their underlying technical base, many running buggy contract scripts that can be easily abused by anyone with knowledge of cryptography and C and C++ coding. End quote. Global Control points out the potential threat of hardware backdoors in transformers and other power generation, transmission, and distribution equipment, the essay also notes the limitations of software bill of materials in addressing this risk. Chinese manufactured equipment has received some adverse comment for the potential security risk it poses, but it remains popular because of its relatively lower cost. The issue may illustrate the familiar maxim that lowest cost doesn't always equate to best value. The Register reports that the Lockbit ransomware gang has, in the wake of Bangkok Airways' refusal to pay the ransom, begun to release the personal data the gang stole. The size of the data dump is assessed variously, with estimates coming in between 103 gigabytes and more than 200 gigabytes. The airline has emphasized that the compromise didn't affect safety of flight, and it's apologized for the exposure of passengers' personal data. Bangkok Airways has told its customers, quote, For primary prevention measures, the company highly recommends passengers to contact their bank or credit card provider and follow their advice and change any compromised passwords as soon as possible, end quote. And, of course, to be wary of any communications they may receive that purport to be from the airline, but that might be fishing for more data. The U.S. Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency has opened registration for the President's Cup Cybersecurity Competition. Individuals can register through October 4th. Teams have until September 20th to sign up. CISA describes the President's Cup, which was established in response to Executive Order 13870, 
as a national cyber competition aiming to identify, recognize, and reward the best cybersecurity talent in the federal executive workforce. Hosting challenges from across the National Initiative for Cybersecurity Education Cybersecurity Framework, competitors will face a diverse array of challenges and will require an extensive skill set to succeed. And finally, Bloomberg reports that the government of China plans to restrict children's access to online games. During most weeks, young gamers will only be able to play for three hours a week, with some relaxation of the limits on some holidays. Bloomberg summarizes the move as follows, quote, Gaming platforms from Tencent Holdings Limited to NetEase Incorporated can only offer online gaming to minors from 8 p.m. to 9 p.m. on Fridays, weekends, and public holidays, state news agency Xinjiang reported, citing a notice by the National Press and Publication Administration. The new rules are a major step up from a previous restriction set in 2019 of one and a half daily hours most days. End quote. So, a top-down solution, which would seem to require a reliable way of identifying minors. Parents everywhere will agree that wasting time rummaging through the loot boxes and yelling at the screen would be a cross-cultural universal of human youth. China's solution really puts the authority in authoritarian, doesn't it? We'll watch with interest to see how it works out. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Art Bargosian is the CEO and co-founder of Brightov, a cloud-native identity and access management product. I wanted to talk to him because his product spans across a couple of security vendor categories. 
Zero Trust, because you can't do Zero Trust without a robust identity and authorization program. And STP, or Software Defined Perimeter, which is a horrible marketing name because the tech involved smashes completely the perimeter paradigm. By the way, Art didn't invent the name. You can blame the U.S. military for that when they came up with it in the mid-2000s. The bride of product just happens to fit into the category. In the general sense, SDP moves the functions of identity verification and authorization away from the workloads that users are trying to get to. In other words, instead of logging into the Linux machine that hosts the data, users log into a completely different system that's not connected to the Linux system at all. The STP system verifies your identity, checks if you are authorized to access the Linux system in question, and if you are, establishes the connection. Not to the entire network, just to the specific Linux system. So Art, let's just back up and talk about the general problem in the industry with all of these cloud deployments. Any company of any size is probably going to be in multiple clouds. And even small companies like mine, we're a startup. We have like 25 different SaaS services that we use to do our stuff. And that's important context. Even on your examples, being a small business, you already are in multi-cloud. I'll throw a, an interesting statistic out there. There's um, you know, research that indicates mid to large size enterprises, 90% of them are already in multi-cloud, including two or more infrastructures of service, Azure and AWS, GCP Azure and whatnot, plus 50 to 60 SaaS and other as-a-service technologies. And it's growing. From the standpoint of operational processes, especially in the infrastructure and DevOps, but also on the business side, it's very difficult to have you know, multiple processes given the, the differences in, in the cloud you know, technologies and the way they access and you know, permissions are defined in each of the systems. It becomes extremely inefficient and costly. And most of the time, organizations end up granting this access without much control or, or foresight into how that exposes too much access because they have to do it at a fast pace. If they have to support multiple infrastructure platforms, it becomes, again, a, a very uh, inefficient and costly process to support, let's say, you know, DevOps, CI, CD pipelines for both Azure and AWS. And all that results in, on one hand, very high operational cost and burden, but from security standpoint, what it means is when you have to cut corners and compromise security for the sake of velocity, the outcome is almost 100% of the time you have exposed some access in the cloud that is uh, only a matter of time before it gets exploited. I was reviewing the attack sequence behind the SolarWinds attack, the famous supply chain attack from earlier in the year. It seems to me that if a SolarWinds customer had an STP solution in place before the attacks, it would have greatly reduced the chances that the attackers would have been successful. I realize that you might be biased here because you sell an STP product, but would you agree with my assumption? I, I would not only say that, I would be prepared to defend it. <laughs> because <laughs> if you look at, yeah, <laughs> if you kind of break down sort of the whole attack trajectory there, you know, it was a classic classic scenario that we've been, you know, talking about for a few years now, you know, lateral movement, compromise of a privileged, static privileged credential in the VMware management console, which let the attackers pivot into Azure environment, gain federated identity controls, set up identity endpoints, 
And that was pretty much game over at that point. How the tech like this would have eliminated that exposure is there would not be a, a static admin access into VMware console. And any session with that admin level should and would have gone through multiple levels of uh, you know, authorization authentication to verify who the user is before they would be allowed to do that. That's Art Pagosian, the CEO and co-founder of Brightham. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And joining me once again is Joe Kerrigan. He's from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute and also my co-host over on the Hacking Humans podcast. Hello, Joe. Hi, Dave. You know, over on Hacking Humans, uh, we talk a lot about things like phishing emails mm-hmm. and uh, spear phishing and whaling and all those kinds of things. Uh, this article from Wired, written by Lily Hay Newman, caught my eye. It's titled, AI Wrote Better Phishing Emails Than Humans in a Recent Test. Yeah. What's going on here, Joe? So, some researchers from Singapore's Government Technology Agency presented at Black Hat and DEF CON. What they did was an experiment. It was a kind of a small sample size experiment. They wrote 200 phishing emails themselves. Mm-hmm. And then they used OpenAI's GPT-3, which is a language generation deep learning model Mm -hmm. to generate another 200 spear phishing emails. Hmm. And they found that the AI generated phishing emails were more effective than the ones they wrote themselves. Hmm. So this is interesting because it is a small sample size, right? It's only 200 people. Right. They kind of had inside knowledge about these people so they could tailor these phishing attacks towards these, these individuals. But the key takeaway here is that the AI generated better click-through results for these phishing emails, more Hmm. successful click-through results. Yeah. And, you know, this speaks to something I think we've wondered about, which is, you know, at at, at what point and to what degree do the bad guys start using some of these AI-as-a-service platforms for their own purposes? There's a a lot of discussion about that in the article. And one of the things the article points out is that it does cost a lot of money to build your own model or to train your own model. Mm Mm-hmm. You have to have AI experts who uh, understand what the algorithm is going to do. And then you have to uh, spend actual money on hardware to train it because the hardware to do it isn't cheap. It's actually one of the barriers to entry to this field. Yeah. But if you can do it as a service, but then— Exactly. If you do it as a service, uh, for example, with this OpenAI product, actually Microsoft has licensed the model, Yeah. right? But you can still, they have exclusive rights to the underlying model, but you can still go out and use the API, which is what these guys from Singapore did. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you can feed it in some parameters and it spits out really, really effective text. Yeah. And there is 
OpenAI is in the, in this article says we put a lot of uh, a lot of tests on our you know checks and balances on our system to make sure that it doesn't get abused. Right. And the people from Singapore's technology agency worked with OpenAI. They didn't just do this out of the blue. They mm-hmm. they told they told OpenAI what they were doing. So AI OpenAI knew about this, but they're not the only people out there with a natural language processing language generator. Right. And it costs millions of dollars right now to train a model, but in the future, that will not be the case. Mm-hmm. So this is something we need to start thinking about now. How do we protect ourselves against these things? I say frequently, email's terrible because <laughs> if I have an email address, I just put a server out there, anybody can put anything in there. Right. Uh, and that's like, I, I can't think of another, another aside from anonymous FTP where you have to deliberately turn on the ability for people to upload things. I can't think of another system on the internet like that. Yeah. It also strikes me that because there are so widely available, these data sets about all of us, you right. know, we, I could go to a data broker and I'm sure I could find out all sorts of things about Joe Kerrigan, you yeah. know, hobbies and interests and work history and all those sorts of things that could be plugged into some sort of automated system that could then weave together some sort of plausible-sounding message that that seems like it was written just for you, because in a way, it was. Exactly. I don't see this becoming a big problem for phishing emails, right? Because of exactly what you just said. In order for these things to be effective, you have to feed the algorithm information about the target. Mm -hmm. But the fact that an AI model generates more effective spear phishing emails, that's significant. Now, there there does need to be further study on this, and, and and both the people from OpenAI and uh, Singapore Government Technology Agency agree that, that this is just a first bit of research on it. There's much more that needs to be done, but this is something we need to start thinking about right now. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. Fascinating. I mean, the business case, uh, mm-hmm. if, if, you're, if the cost for buying that information from data brokers or, you know, I mean, heck, it's, it's out there on the dark web also. Right. You can it's download, on LinkedIn, right? Da- yeah, yeah, right. So if the cost of doing that is low enough uh, and you combine that with the low price of using one of these AI systems as a service, right? Uh, if your profits from that are high enough, then it makes sense to go in this direction. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Well, Joe Kerrigan, thanks for joining us. My pleasure, Dave. And that's The Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. The Cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing Cyberwire team is Elliot Peltzman, Trey Hester, Peru Prakash, Justin Sabi, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Hi, everybody. It's Maria Varmazas here, your host over at T-Minus Space Daily and sometimes a guest on Hacking Humans, too. We here at N2K CyberWire work hard to bring you concise, intelligence-driven news and commentary, and we'd like to know how we're doing. 
please take a few minutes to complete our audience survey and share your feedback to help us continue to grow and meet your needs. Visit cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey to get started. Thanks so much for your input as we reach for the stars. It means the universe to us. And now a word from our sponsor, SpyCloud, the leader in operationalizing cybercrime analytics. Traditional threat intelligence is a thing of the past. Cyber criminals are stealing vast amounts of credentials, session cookies, and financial data every day, and it's hard to keep up. SpyCloud is the trusted partner businesses turn to to fully understand their darknet exposure risk and neutralize threats before it's too late. SpyCloud alerts your organization as soon as an employee or customer's data appears on the dark net, so you can act faster than bad actors to prevent cyber attacks like ransomware, session hijacking, account takeover, and online fraud. With insights from the industry's largest repository of recaptured data, protect the digital identities and systems most important to your business. Get your free corporate darknet exposure report at spycloud.com slash cyberwire and see what information criminals have in their hands today. That's spycloud.com slash cyberwire. Cyberwire. 